Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to remind you that early bird pricing is ending on April 30th for Transfigured, which is our Young Adult Liturgy Conference. So if you want 50 bucks off that conference, you got to register before April 30th, and then prices go up. Also, if you want to bring a group of 10 or more to this conference, we can give you a, a pretty sweet discount. So you want to call Karen at 847 837 Four five four two. Talk to Karen; she'll get you squared away if you have a group of ten or more. Also, just a couple clarifying questions because we've been getting this a lot from people. Um, we've been asked since there's drinking involved, which there is. There's an open bar Friday night and there's an open bar Saturday night, which is awesome. Uh, if you are not 21, can you come to this conference? And the answer is yes. Uh, we are just going to give wristbands to those who are 21 and over. And also, you can go to this social anyway. You can have soda and water and whatever. But there are other things you can do on campus, too. We will have adoration and confession available in the main chapel. And you can just walk around this beautiful campus of ours. So there will be plenty to do anyway. Uh, If you are under 21 and you're thinking about coming to this conference and you're worried about the age limit, there is no age limit. Come to the conference anyway. I think you'll still enjoy it. The other clarifying question I want to answer is, uh, people ask us, am I a young adult? Uh, well, I'm not really the one to tell you if you're a young adult. I can tell you that the USCCB says that anyone from the ages of 18 to 39 is considered a young adult. But even then, that is a, what is according to one organization. So if you're 45 and you don't fit in the USCCB guidelines for a young adult, come anyway. I think you'll enjoy it. So this week, we are talking about progressive solemnity. I cannot tell you how long I've been trying to get Dennis and Chris to talk about this. I think this is a fascinating topic. I love that our liturgical calendar has ups and downs and that it's not just this flat line across the year. So we can look forward to things. We can look forward to feast days or solemnities or or special feast days, a feast day of my namesake or my confirmation saint. So I think it's a fascinating topic. I hope you enjoy this episode. So without further ado, Episode 34 of Season 2 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Oh, you know what? What? I like my solemnities like I like my car insurance. Flow. Progressive. Oh, progressive. <laughs> wow. Hey. What? I like progressive solemnity, and I've been pushing for Hey, we're all for it here. Yeah, we know. Backstory here is I've been pushing Je- for this. Jesse has been railing on a podcast about progressive solemnity. Do you remember the last time. topic I was trying to force? No. I was like, hey, what are we talking about today? Noble simplicity, right? Come on. We got to talk about noble simplicity. You guys were like, no, no, no. Well, you know, that is actually. I remember his headline, no bull <laughs> yeah. simplicity. No yeah. bull. We'll that see was what a, we see. What that was a DMAC. That was a DMAC. Oh, was it? Yeah. 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 His poison of yeah. puns is <laughs> percolating my person. But now I want to talk about progressive I know. So. We're very committed to this at the Liturgical Institute. Mm-hmm. And noble simplicity is related to it, right? Because remember, noble 
is that knowable contraction of knowable, which comes from nobilis, which in Latin, which comes from nocere in Latin, which means to know, right? So you're, you you make the words right out of my mouth. I know that they they're better in mine than yours, but <laughs> that's the, true. Uh, knowableness is how things are communicated, how the reality of something is communicated to you. If they're knowable, knowable. You think it's related to when you speak about the nobility? They're the people who are known. Does that mean the same Yes, thing? we talked about that in relation to Downton Abbey, right? Oh, the the nobles Sorry. have to live like nobles, right? It's proper to their station to have the right clothes because they have this important job governing the, the county and so on. But what I, what I like about progressive solemnity is that as the um, head of a household and uh, along with my wife, uh, to our two beautiful children, I like that. And the other one is not so beautiful. Not so yeah, beautiful, yeah. yeah. We won't talk about him. Uh, Chad. Anyway. (laughs) Hanging Chad. (laughs) He hangs around. Uh, Just kidding. I don't have a third child yet, I guess. Anyway, um, what I like about uh, progressive solemnity from a domestic church perspective is that we as a domestic church can reflect what's going on in the liturgical calendar, and we can participate in another way alongside the liturgy. So solemnities... Uh, we can celebrate solemnities in the liturgy, in the mass, but then we can also do something in our domestic church as well. So that's that's really why I want to push this, because I think the domestic church is such an important part of our lives and our church today. That's why you want to push this? Yeah. Well, okay, also, so it's really... We're done now. He's po- pope of, no, the, it's pope really, of his own domestic church. No, it's really cool. And, and, we, and we talk about this every once in a while, but, like, Chris, what's your what's your favorite food to eat? Steak. Steak. If you had steak every day, it wouldn't yes. be steak to you anymore. It would, it would begin to be just ordinary food because mm. you have steak every day. I guess that's true. But if you only had steak, let's say, on solemnities, then you would be able to participate in that solemnity in a fuller way or a more, more full way I than you I think I see your point and I have to agree if you, with If it, your birthday yeah. was your birthday every day and you just celebrated every day, it wouldn't be special anymore. So that varying degree of your day-to-day liturgical life, I think, it, you know. So is this progressive solemnity which you're describing? We, we, I, b- I believe it is. Okay. I, I, I hear I, a sort of binary model of solemnities coming okay. out of his mouth. Oh, but there's more. Yeah. We're non-binary here in our liturgical yeah. understanding. So I don't even know what that means. Binary is two. Two of these. Two, one or the other. Oh, Black do you want white. me to do trinary? Trinary. Well, well, there are actually how many degrees of progressive solemnity, Chris? What what is progressive solemnity? Yeah. First of all, okay. Well, I did I did like the layman's definition. <laughs> you now did you the guys, heavy lifting. Now you guys, you well, yeah, where remember, does this come from? I was trying to before talk about knowableness oh, before yeah, we got right. to talking about Downton Abbey because some days in the church life are ordinary days, ferial days, or whatever you call them. Then there are days when certain saints are observed. And then there are certain days that of those certain uh, saints observed are mandatory because they have an importance in the whole church. Some days are feasts because they're very important, and some days are solemnities. And some some of the solemnities are more solemn than other solemnities, and you wouldn't want to treat them all the same way, just like you don't want to eat steak every day. So the idea is, how do you let the reality of each liturgical feast's importance come to be known in the life of the church? And so the answer is. Progressively, right. So some <laughs> are at the bottom of the heap, so to speak, and you wouldn't have, you know, have as much celebratory solemnity. And some are at the very top, like Easter Vigil, say, or Easter Sunday, that would be at the top of the heap of the liturgical calendar. And so the idea is to let them be what they are through these external realizations uh, or manifestations, and then they're knowable. And then 
Okay. Beautiful. Okay, so we've kind of covered progressive, but let, let's straighten this. Uh, is oh, yeah, this what you meant by the binary thing? What, what, is, what do we mean when we say the word solemnity? What, what, is, what does it mean to be solemn? Yeah, that's a word I should look up, the etymology of that one. But solemn means uh, more importance. There's more pomp and circumstance, more yeah, indication. It's, it's festive, of, yeah. celebratory. It's not necessarily like serious or Yeah, I always so thought solemn. Solemn, solemn was like a serious or, um, you know, like solemn is sad for some reason. No, that's what I think that's maybe a derivative term. But okay. yeah, as Dennis says, we could have looked this up beforehand. But I think that's, that's what the church means. You guys with. had one job. I came up <laughs> no. with the topic and then you guys were supposed to do all the research. <laughs> so, but, but as Dennis says, what solemnity means is, is uh, the level or the degree of seriousness, celebration, festivity, uh, joy, and that's a serious thing too. Worshiping God is both serious and joyful, but it doesn't mean that. So we we distinguish the church's liturgical days according to Sunday, solemnity, feast, memorial, optional memorial, commemoration, or Ooh, that is more detailed than I thought it was. We need Chris here. Okay. <laughs> so progressive solemnity doesn't mean uh, it's not being used in the same way it's, as as. Uh, Progressive solemnity refers to feast days and memorials and ferial days as well. So we're not st talking about solemnities in the in the sense of the term. This ah, yes. level is designated as a solemnity versus a feast. But among solemnities, there is in fact progressive solemnity, isn't there? There because is because some not are, all solemnities are, are as created equal. Right. Yeah. So progressive solemnity means that. Uh, well, you want to do the punchline here. What's the definition? Do you have one? Of progressive solemnity. Yeah. That there's a there's a, a a level of between the most I don't know what's the word a basic ordinary ordinary day versus say the Easter Triduum right that's or the that's extraordinary like day <laughs> well, yes in fact there's a, in in the front of the Roman Missal in the front of the lectionary in the front of the Liturgy of the Hours there's what they call the table of liturgical days and it's mm -hmm. ranked according to their hierarchies or level of uh, solemnity and at the very top is the Paschal Triduum and at the very bottom would be a weekday in ordinary time, and everything else that lines up in between those. So what pr the principle of progressive solemnity would do, would, would say, is that between the, the, again, lowest isn't quite the right way to say it, but mm -hmm. say, you know, a Wednesday in ordinary time of the 17th week, between that and the Easter Triduum, there's different degrees of festivity, joy, celebration that becomes expressed or sacramentalized or symbolized in music, in the amount of singing and the type of vestments that are used. The number of candles? Sure, number of candles, Whether use you, of incense. Yeah, use of, see that was. How many ministers? You, uh, the, the liturgical institute has mass in the morning every day and, and um, I usually get in at, you know, when mass is already done or, you know, shortly into it. And whenever I smell incense, I'm like, oh, it's uh, some, some, some day is today. Like, it's an important day today. Mm -hmm. yep. and, and then it makes me to, you know, to think about what day yeah, it is. Yeah, doesn't it, though? I mean, if you, if you went to the 6.30 a.m. mass on a Thursday in July, you wouldn't expect that when you walked in, you'd, you'd see six candles on the altar and a number of deacons and uh, a number of servers in the incense mm -hmm. and all of the rest and prelude music going yeah. on. That it, it, if you were locked in a box for months and you lost time, the track of time, and then you, they let you out and you saw a turkey on the table and a cornucopia with, you know, pumpkins coming Easter. out of it. <laughs> and the family's all there and eating pumpkin pie, you'd be like, whoa. 
it's Thanksgiving. It's suddenly mm-hmm. you would be set in the whole cosmic alignment of time just by looking at those external things. Or if there's a Christmas tree in the corner or whatever it is, these externals remind us and help us to remember what we're doing. Well, that's a good point, too, that this principle of progressive solemnity isn't a pecul- peculiarly Catholic principle. It's a very human principle. Chris loves the human principles. Yeah, you do love human (laughs) principles. Well, that's one of the awesome things about uh, Catholic liturgy and the Catholic faith generally. It's the most, I think, the most human of all expressions of the faith because you never have to check your humanity. It's going to perfect your humanity by the things that we do. So yeah, so I'm all for the human principle. Nice. Human, all too human. Now, um, Father Bema, the director of the Institute or the academic dean for the university uh, was talking about this progressive solemnity being originated from the liturgy of the hours. Well, it's mentioned sort of. in the general instruction. Yeah, where does this of the come from? The hours. Well, the well, which comes first? Musicum sacrum is older than the general instruction from the right. liturgy of the hours, right? Yeah. So, Musicum sacrum is is it which instruction on the sacred liturgy first, second? No, no, second? it's it's neither. Oh. It's, it's none of those things. What what it is doing is it's translating the the principles, the more general and broad principles of sacrosanctum concilium, into real concrete uh, applications and proposals. It's an instruction on music in the liturgy. From the Secret Congregation of Rights in 1967. 1967. March. We do have to. We do have to get uh, Monsignor Dempsey on here to talk us about talk to us about the level of documents, the progressive uh, importance of documents. So yeah, well that makes sense too. You know, the Constitution trumps some local law. You know, some things have great authority. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is a pretty authoritative document, though. It is. It is. Some some say that uh, you know music's a kind of a combative potentially combative uh, topic and that uh, so is liturgy so. <laughs> yeah, li- yeah. Uh, and that there were a number of musical camps that uh, had their hands in putting this document together and it was Paul the sixth himself they say as far as I know these things uh, that really had to bring it to, to reconciliation so he was had a great hand in musicum sacrum but it's so that's 1967 the um, general introduction of the liturgy of the hours uses it 73 something like that and then, uh, as far as I can tell, in the in the U.S. Church, there's a document called "Sing to the Lord: Music and Divine Worship." Oh yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, and that uh, has a, a very large section on progressive solemnity. So I think we can say that, as we as we did, that the the principle is a human one, and it's not like it dropped out of the air, you know, after with the Second Vatican Council. People knew, people had a sense of this beforehand. I suppose even with you distinguish between. High mass, low yeah. mass, solemn high mass, and the rest. But right. this is this is where it starts to get uh, articulated. And in I these think documents. some of the the reason you know this sounds like a reasonable thing to do, no matter what. But I think the particular liturgical situation they're addressing, maybe you can confirm this, confirm this, Chris, is that the high mass was very rarely done because you had to sing every single thing. You had to have all these ministers. It was very elaborate. You needed a scola. You had to sing this very complicated Latin. But yet they thought that the high mass was the primary thing that people should encounter because it was the fullness of the liturgy. It was kind of the ordinary form of the preconciliar. Right, and everything uh, else. It was the normative way that mass was to have been celebrated. Right, and, a, and a, a low mass was the kind of minimalization of mass for the cases where you didn't have a choir and a deacon and a subdeacon and all those people that you needed. However, what it meant was that most people never went to a high mass because it took too long, it was too late in the day, they were fasting for midnight. Parishes, I, I think in my own little parish in rural Wisconsin, I'm guessing, I wasn't there, that they just didn't have the resources to do that. And so the, what became the, the normative form in some ways was the, was the low mass form. Right, the, basically the rubrics of the private mass, although one 
person only mass became the norm for most people's communal celebration of the liturgy. But what's interesting, as far as I could tell, is that between the, the low mass and the high mass, where you have everything recited or everything sung, according to the rubrics, you couldn't, there was no middle ground. You either sang everything Whoa, or you okay. recited everything. And even if you recited everything, most of it was quiet in the low mass. So it wasn't well, it even, was, and this is heard. where, where uh, I think it's uh, Pius XII said that hymns could be sung, as long as the, the, the parts were spoken, then hymns could be sung you know, in the vernacular by the people at certain points in the mass. And so, but they were kind of a step away from, from the low mass. But see, this is where I think progressive solemnity is in some ways revolutionary. Uh, with musicam sacrum is that rather than everything that needs to be sung has to be sung or nothing is sung and everything's recited now there's a progression between these two poles where you can gradually introduce or take away according to the the level of the day yes and you know where we find that paragraph that man oh paragraph 38 yeah that was sort of like the bat phone you know Let's go, Robin, slide down the pole to <laughs> paragraph 38 of Musicum Sacrum. Okay. Holy vestments, Batman. <laughs> when the divine office is to be celebrated in sung form, this principle of progressive solemnity can be used. Inasmuch as those parts which lend themselves more directly to a sung form, and guess what those are? The dialogues, the hymns, the verses, and the canticles may be sung, and the rest recited. And, you know, if you ever go to um, a religious house or something and the they have a common celebration of the Liturgy of the Hours, but they're sitting there with the breviary in their hand, and blah, 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 recite, recite, recite. And the guys on the other side go, blah, 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 blah. There's just something about that that seems kind of sad and <laughs> depressing, you know? And there's nothing wrong with reciting the Liturgy of the Hours, but it's really, in its nature, a sung prayer, and the minimalization of it is sometimes necessary. But what this is saying is, no, you, the things that are properly meant to be sung, like the hymns, could you imagine reciting a hymn? People do that, used to do that, because they didn't have the singers, or they didn't know the melody, and they would just recite, you know, the sort of hymn at the beginning. I used to do that with my the men's group, and really? then, I, then I started doing, you know, the Mundelein Psalter here at work, and so I, I introduced it, and I think some of the guys were a little worried about, you know, the quality of their voice and being able to do it, but then when we started doing it, and we had a couple people that were strong singers on, on either side, uh, they enjoyed it because it elevated what we were doing. Exactly. Well, I think that's, a, that's another important part of progressive solemnity. All right, so you, you have, what, what are the components that, that you can add to make it more solemn? Well, some could be music or the level of music or the instruments. Decoration. Uh, n- decoration, number of ministers. But I think a, another important part here is the people involved. So, for example, on a seminary campus or at the liturgical institute where people are in the chapel for liturgical prayer three times a day at least, and there's a certain level of uh, theological and liturgical formation that's going on. The assembly at a seminary campus is uh, much more capable, I think, of singing more complex things or adding music. uh, music. They they have have, have a number of deacons, and they have a number of priests, and they have a number of servers, and it's not a a straight transition to, say, St. Philip's Parish and Rolling Ground, because we don't have the the formation or the, the capacity, the resources to do the same sorts of things too. So it's also relative to the, the types of participants that are involved. But even the, we, we've talked about how the cathedral in a diocese is supposed to be the exemplary liturgy too. And so that's kind of, <clears throat> sorry, case of the Carstens. Um, that's kind of, we have this subset of progressive solemnity depending on what you're talking about, where, you, where your parish is 
and what resources do you have? And if you're the cathedral of a big city, then you have more resources at your disposal. You have, probably have um, maybe a better choir or more, uh, more elaborate decorations and things like that to really show what's going on so yeah. they can set the, the example for everybody else in the in diocese. In fact, that's what a cathedral is supposed to do when you read the documents. Is the cathedral is supposed to model the normative liturgy as much as possible, and seminaries too. And then after that, it kind of filters down to what's possible in different places. But, everything, but, but something is at least possible in all places. I mean, Jesse started this by talking about kind of observing a progressive solemnity in, in your own home, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the, the meal you're going to have at Easter is going to be different from the meal you're going to have, you know, on a, on a Tuesday. Or the, you know, maybe the type of music that you're listening to in the house. I don't know if you listen to music in the kitchen. While never. Going, never. No music in this house. <laughs> uh, the, the type of clothes you're going to dress, that Kim's going to dress the kids in, is going to be different on a solemn day versus uh, one that's less Yesterday solemn. you came in in a navy blazer and we were both like, oh, Jesse, what are you doing today? Got a meeting? No, I lost a lot of weight and now something that I wore a while ago fits me again. Right, but I, we, was, I was celebrating We that. saw your, your <laughs> solemnity in the, that blue blazer and assumed something, you know, when... when um, I used to, we didn't used to wear ties here every day back in the Mannion day. And if I came in in a tie, Kevin, Kevin would always say, oh, is it, are you teaching today? Like he just knew. He saw a tie mm-hmm. on me. He said, oh, you're teaching today. So these things uh, tell us what's going on. And even in the rite itself, you know, there's, there's no Gloria, for instance, in Lent. But there is a Gloria on a certain feast day, even if it's during the week and it's not a Sunday. There's no creed. Most weekdays, unless it's a solemnity. So we had St. Joseph not too long ago and in the middle of Lent, and we sang the Gloria and the Creed mm-hmm. <laughs> in the middle of Lent. The other thing, too, is uh, so uh, I'm friends with uh, Kevin. 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 I'm friends with his son on Facebook. His name is Patrick. And I saw on Facebook he posted uh, his wife made him breakfast in bed, and it was like all this delicious like bacon and all this stuff. And he and then he did hashtag personal solemnity because his, his he was named after Saint Patrick, nice. so so he had a solemnity that day. And we talked about this too. This is one of the cooler things I think that um, you guys have taught me is that. Um, if you belong to St. Anne Parish, then the Feast of St. Anne is elevated to a solemnity. Or if in you that are, parish. Yeah. In that parish. Or if you are in a diocese that is, you know, Patrick, like New York, then St. Patrick's Day is a solemnity for you. The because, whole diocese. So that stuff is just really cool. And then it allows you to access this information and it allows you to access um, the, the entire community of saints, the communion of saints in, in a better way than if you were just to be like, oh, it's that person's day. But then you have also, I think Mary Magdalene was just elevated a couple years ago. Is that correct? She oh, went, to a feast? I think it was, uh, I, I could be wrong. I think it went from a feast to uh, solemnity. No, I think it was a memorial. It was a Mo- pretty significant memorial, though. So, oh, okay. Uh, right, so there's all sorts not, of... Yeah, sorry, not a solemnity. It wouldn't have been. Yeah, but, to a, I think it's to a feast, that's right. So it was a memorial... But then, then it became a feast. I think that's true. But the, some of the takeaways from this principle of progressive solemnity, I think, is for, for the faithful, is just to be attuned to what you see and smell and hear uh, when you go to Mass, that the signs are going to tell you how solemn, more or less, the day is. And so there's, these are things that the, the faithful should look for. But for people who are in charge of liturgical planning uh, or preparation... Yeah, what are some that, practical things you can say for a higher level of solemnity in a, in a Mass? Oh, well, d- what we've said already is that the, the certain things can be sung. Now, we, this, maybe we've done this as a podcast or not before. What are those certain things that would be sung on a solemnity versus on a memorial? 
but it's adding in uh, different types of music, number of candles, use of incense, use of ministers, uh, use of decoration. Or right. So our standard here is for a burial day or a memorial, we have two candles on the altar. For a feast, we have four. For a solemnity, we have six. And then if the bishop or local ordinary comes, you have the seventh candle, which is uh, something people often forget. But I don't think Cardinal Subrich is going to come to one of our daily masses. Well, I bet he, but if he does, he, you better have one yeah, of that candle. That's yeah. true. Well, we, we invited him. He might come. Um, so that's one thing. You know, the other day we, when we, um, we had solemnity for Vespers, Father Don came in in a cope instead of just a uh, alp and stole. And then we had incense during the Magnificat. So we knew, oh, we're celebrating solemn Vespers on this uh, solemnity. So it's not that hard, you know. There, there's the gold vestment, which almost nobody well, ever wears, for instance. That's like the most solemn of vestments for Easter, or singing the gospel, which most people never hear. But if someone sings the whole gospel to you, you're just like, wow, something's going well, on. Who is Father today. Don that you were mentioning, who's, who's, who's a student? The best priest ever, really. Yeah, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Father yeah, Don. Yeah. He's ta- we, at lunch, we were talking about, have you ever heard the Passion sung, like on Palm Sunday or on Good Friday? People said, singing the whole Passion, which it can be. And uh, he said, I just, I can't imagine. These liturgies are so long already in the parish. And he said, well, actually, when I heard it, it was in, it was either at the seminary or it was in a monastery or something like that. So what's the point? They have plenty of time. <laughs> well, it's, it's that, you know, different communities are able to do, to do different things. But uh, every community should do, should do something. Right. Imagine if it were your birthday and there was no cake, no candles, no streamers. And they came out and said, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Jesse, happy birthday to you. That's regressive solemnity. Regressive. Would would you feel like this day was important, like you were loved, like that people are celebrating the fact that you were born? No. And so liturgy is always festive. Even at its lowest level of solemnity, it's still a party of the celebration of the heaven and earth becoming one, Christ and his church. But then some days are more, some days are less. And it gives you a lot of flexibility. And, that, and this kind of, like I said, goes back to the domestic church. And these are things that I want to try to implement in, in my daily life with my family, too. So Agnes, my daughter, I'm the feast of St. Agnes would be a very special day for her. And kill a lamb outside. And, yeah, and then, uh, and then she gets to eat it. Um, yep. But uh, <laughs> that did happen on the Johnson Farm once, Chris's home farm. Oh, yeah. You I was there on Easter, and Canisius, his brother-in-law, Cut the head off the lamb, and it was out. And the, the cats in the barn were looking up all the blood, and the head oh was sitting gosh. over there. And then he like sliced open the belly, and all the guts fell out into the. Yeah, this is getting cut into the uh, pun intended. Whatever. And then we ate the lamb. Like two hours later, it was Easter. Bah. <laughs> Don't cut that. That's how. That's where food comes from, Jesse. Oh man, there might be some vegetarians listening to this, and I'm sensitive to their progressive taste needs of food. All right. Anyway. Thank you very much for diving into this. I appreciate it. And I can't wait to come up with another topic for yeah, you guys to We research. can't wait either. What's he going to start <laughs> ranting about now, Dennis? Are you going to insist that we talk about Mediator Day? Nope. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> but I insist. Uh, all right. So the other place to look to is the general instruction of the Liturgy of the Hours number, Chris, mm. two, 273. Did you really just remember that? No, I'm looking at it all. No, he's a genius. Okay. That's your your homework tonight, Jesse. Read 273. 273 of the germ. Or the General Structural Literacy Hours. Oh, the the Jill. The Dill. Yep. (laughs) All right. Should we answer a question? Yes. Nah. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) I'm feeling solemn today. How progressive of you. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? 
Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, we have a question this week from Bea. Bea is a devoted listener. Yes. And uh, Bea says, Please talk about Cardinal Seurat's statements on receiving the Holy Eucharist, kneeling, and on the tongue. And uh, there's another part, but that's a separate question. So uh, these are... Cardinal Seurat made a recent statement about receiving the Eucharist, and I think a lot of people were using it in stories. It was a big headline in the Catholic world. This is a few weeks ago, obviously, but... Yeah. Up front, I'll say I didn't read the story. Okay. I didn't read the statement. So it's always a little dangerous to comment on it. When, but he's a position, he's in a position highly placed within the church, right? As the prefect, is that what he's called? The prefect? Yeah. Of the Congregation the for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. So when he says something, it gets some news. So what's, I, it, what's his concern? I think he wants us to have respect for the Holy Eucharist and to receive in a prayerful and nice way. Yeah, in a, in a fruitful way. Yeah. To receive communion in such a way that it can have its fullest effect on your divinization and sanctification. Right. Now, he has not legislated this, right? This is not a new law comes out. I guess he's not really authorized to do that. So what is he doing? He's encouraging people to receive the Eucharist in a... In a fruitful, devout, yeah, humble de- way. Devoted way, right. So what, what, what are the laws on receiving? You can receive standing or kneeling, right? So if you... What, the, what Sacramentum Caritatis and the general instruction of the Roman Missal say is the, the normative posture, at least in the United States, is standing unless you want to kneel. That's basically what it says. Uh, so that's possible. You can receive, there are a number of ways actually listed in the general instruction about how to receive communion. You can receive through a tube or a straw. I am not Wait, familiar with this tradition. What? Yeah, I think it must be in one of the, although it's, a, it's speaking about the Roman Rite Mass, I don't, I just don't know where that comes from. It's not, it, I've never seen it. You can receive with a spoon. So I know in some of the Eastern rites where they would put the, the consecrated leavened bread that they used to be consecrated into the chalice and then uh, the, the, the priest would distribute with a spoon to the recipient. Wow. Yeah. They do that with babies who get communion okay. in the baptism right. you know, in the Eastern church, the tiny little drop on yeah, their Yeah, but tongue. why would it be in the Roman rite instructions? That's a little confusing. Yeah, anyway, I know, but you can receive via intinction, uh, not self-intinction, but the priest or deacon can dip the consecrated host in precious blood and give it to the communicant. That had have to be on the tongue. You obviously can't receive that mm-hmm. in your hand. Um, or you can receive just uh, on the tongue or in the hand the, the host and then uh, drink separately from the chalice. So those are all legitimate options. So well, could, should Cardinal yeah. Sarah go out and say, this is my favorite option, when he knows how important his Well, he knows that... 
listen to me. I think the the Cardinal's on <laughs> solid ground here when he when he does he's expressing what the what seems to be at least the immediate tradition of the church is to receive uh, kneeling and on the tongue, even if the you can receive standing or in the hand. It is is receiving in the hand legitimate only in America, or is that throughout the entire no, I, world? No, I think how it started is individual bishops' conferences requested permission. I don't think it'd be called an indult because the norm was to receive on the tongue. So they wanted to uh, receive, um, uh, make available the option to receive in the hand. And I think it was Paul VI uh, commented, he's, he gave the permission, but he said, but be very uh, careful that the Eucharist is still received uh, appropriately. I can't remember so the So could name it be said document. that yeah. Cardinal is talking about the the world church, not just yeah. So, so, yeah. But, but by but by now, I think it's 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 a universal. I think I'm not positive about this. I think it's a universal permission to receive in the hand. But again, what's what behind all of this? I mean, I think people of good faith can uh, disagree about you know what is the most reverent way. But the reason I think we could say it's the most traditional way is what's required for proper disposition to receive communion is a large dose of humility and a desire to become like Jesus. And does that make sense then if you were kneeling? I mean, you, you've kind of taken all of the power out of your, you, you can't run away, you can't, I mean, you're, 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 the posture is a very humble one, and that's very consonant with what's actually happening at communion. Or I've tried to make this analogy with, um, you know, when a, when a bride and groom get married and they give each other a piece of the wedding cake, you know, and they're not shoving it in each other's mouths or things like or that. Grabbing it out of the other person's Right. Mouth. It's, it doesn't turn into, you know, a circus. But I think that's a gesture of kind of humble dependence upon what the other is going to provide. And I think that, too, is, is maybe a cultural example of what receiving on the tongue uh, can mean, is that, you know, Jesus is the one who gives me the power to become sanctified. Now, that's not to say it's, I, uh, anybody cares. I receive both ways. I and, care. And I, thanks, Dennis. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I like to think when I receive communion in the hand, I'm doing, I'm, I have these things in my mind. And, um, but what, however, however you end up doing it, it's about you becoming like what you are eating, namely Jesus. And whatever posture, whatever manner helps to facilitate that is the one that you should do. If it's permitted by the church, yep. then it's permitted by the church, right? So you might have your preferred method. You may even have a theological argument, which one's the best, but we always work with the mind of the church. Now, some people do argue that if communion is received in the hand, you know, a Satanist could sneak in and then walk off with it because nobody really checks to see if you consume the host and then they can take a consecrated host for desecration. So, you know, there people worry about that sort of stuff, which, you know, you hear about that happening. People just, they don't know what the Eucharist is and they put it in the coat pocket and <laughs> just walk off with it. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't do that if you receive it in the tongue. So I think in the hand does open it up for the possibility of abuse, but maybe that's not the number one reason not to do it. But that, that's one of the reasons you often hear is that it, it's more possible to commit sacrilege in the hand. Um, but the church allows it. The church allows it. So that's where we are. Okay. Bea, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.